Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in our tiredness with the heat, in the preoccupations that we bring with us uh, to this meeting, we pray in your mercy you would let us now hear your word. You would let us know what you say of Jesus and of us. Help me to teach your word truthfully and clearly and we pray that we would know it's good work helping us to trust Jesus and live for him in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What have you been thinking about over the last few days? Uh, Some of us I know have had matters of life and death before us, whether it's been attending funerals, going to doctor's appointments or trying to plan for the future of elderly relatives. Perhaps in the light of Cardinal Pell sentencing, others of us have been pondering matters of justice and judgment. But for many of us, I suspect, over the last few days, we've been thinking about how we can stay cool, how we can keep the garden alive, how we can keep the children occupied when they can't go outside. Oh, and what do I need to do for work? What will we eat this week? Oh, when can I catch up with that person? Our lives are often preoccupied with the ordinary, with the daily round of chores and pleasures and conversation. The horizon of our thinking is very much this world, isn't it? Our family, our study, our work, our health, which means it takes some effort to really come to terms with what Jesus says about himself here in John chapter 8. In this chapter, Jesus does say a lot about himself, It begins and ends with Jesus making extraordinary claims for himself. I am the light of the world before Abraham was. I am. There is a greatness to what Jesus claims about himself that is so far beyond our ordinary preoccupations that transcends the conscious horizons of our lives. In just these two verses, he claims to be a figure who dominates the universe and all time of importance to all people, the light of the world, and one who is, who shares the being of God with God. And as we'll see as we go through John 8, there is also a seriousness to what he says about humanity, about us, that is unsettling, challenging our confidence in our judgments and disturbing our complacency about our goodness and what we deserve from God. Here, in the words of Jesus in John 8, eternity intersects your life. There is a lot in chapter 8. And so I've decided, as you see from the outline, not to follow the narrative through, but to bring together what Jesus says here of himself and us, to, in a sense, concentrate it. Why? So that encountering Jesus' testimony to himself and us in its concentrated form, we actually hear it. We feel its impact and so are forced to reckon with it and decide how to respond. So let's start with what Jesus says about himself, about his word, his work and his person. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. 
in response to the Pharisees trying to dismiss everything Jesus says about himself by misusing the law's requirement in Deuteronomy 19 that to gain a conviction you needed two or three witnesses and in that, by that suggesting that nothing Jesus says about himself could be true unless someone else says it. In response to this false claim, Jesus replies that his testimony is true, that he speaks the truth about himself. In fact, he generalises this claim in verses 40 to 45 to tell us he tells the truth, full stop. Jesus speaks the truth. And it is true with a certainty, he says, that no mere human word can be. Firstly, Jesus distinguishes his knowing the truthfulness of what he says from that of the Pharisees. He, he says, has the full picture. He knows where he's come from and where he's going. They don't. They judge according to the flesh. That is, their knowledge is limited by weakness and the intrinsic limits of being finite creatures, people caught in just a moment of time. Now, you may have heard the story of the blind men and the elephant. You know, each blind man confusing the small piece of the elephant they're aware of, whether it's the tusk or the ear or the tail, with the total reality of the elephant. And that's actually us, thinking the small piece of the world and history we experience is the totality of reality. Now, who can correct the blind? Who can really describe the elephant? Well, it's the one who knows it all, who sees the big picture, and that's Jesus. Jesus has the big picture, the full picture about himself, the beginning, where he comes from, and the end, where he's going. And that's just not, not true just of himself. Jesus has the full picture of reality. How? Well, while distinguishing himself from the Father, Jesus equates his word with the word of God. For he speaks what he sees and hears and learns from the Father. It's true, his word is true because it's the word of God. What he has heard from the Father who is true, who knows all things because he created all things by his word. <coughs> I speak the truth, says Jesus, and that is a great claim. And it's not the truth as he sees it from his limited perspective, which may be corrected by later and fuller knowledge. No, he says he speaks absolute truth, truth from the one who knows all things, knows all history, knows the beginning and the end. Now consider for a moment the value of a true word in a world of many words, where we have learnt that what people say, even their description of observations about the world, it's determined by their outlook, their presuppositions about the world, so that it is always just their take on things. In this world, Jesus says his word describes what is and what will be. In confusion and conflicting interpretations of reality and its nature, about right and wrong, about the best way to live, he says his word is true, it can be relied on. Think of the power of that. For example, your feelings say your life will be better if you walk out or move in, but you're not sure. Oh, you know what you feel, but you're not sure what will be better. Jesus' word says it's right to be faithful, wrong to have sex before marriage, and that you will reap what you sow. 
The truth lets you choose what will be best despite what you feel. More, we face ultimate choices where we can't know from our own experience the consequences because those consequences are in the future. Ultimate choices that determine our direction now and our eternity. So, for example, do you live as if this life is just chance, just all there is, and so you maximise pleasure now? Or is there a judgement and an eternity with a divide between heaven and hell? Jesus says his word is true, that though heaven and earth should pass away, his word will still be true. That you can know reality, know what is to come. You can build your life upon his word, make all your decisions and choice based upon it with confidence that it will bring life. Truth is treasure. And speaking the truth, Jesus makes true promises. True because they are, he says, the promises of the God who can do all things, the God whose word is powerful to bring about what it promises. If you abide in my word, he says, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or verse 51, anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Here are promises of freedom and life, light in darkness, made to those who abide, to those who keep, who have not just a familiarity with Jesus' word, but are so convinced of its truth that they have a commitment to believe and live by that word and to keep on holding true to it all through life. Jesus is someone who claims his promise, his word, should shape your whole life, should be relied on for eternal life. Who can say that? And Jesus speaks of his work, of what he came to do and will do. He says that he honours his Father, always doing what is pleasing to him. That is his work, to honour the Father by doing his will. And he does that will in all things, whether that's healing on the Sabbath or dying on the cross. His work is doing in all things the work of God, his Father. Oh, and Jesus says that he has come as light into the world, to be the light of the world. Now think of the scope of the work Jesus claims to do. He is not just the teacher of a few first century Jews, but of the world, embracing all people and all time. And think of the power of the work he claims to do. Light sustains life, it gives life. Jesus says he is the light that guides and protects God's people and brings them to the land of promise, to life itself. And Jesus says he brings freedom, freedom from sin and its consequences, death and exclusion from God's house. Again, think of the scope. Sin enslaves all. And Jesus says he can give freedom to any. And the power, sin has ensnared our whole world. But Jesus says he can break its hold. Who can give freedom? Not just from this oppressor, but from all, for all, and for all time. Do you get a sense of what Jesus says is the significance of what he does? Now, making these claims about his word and work leads to Jesus being asked the obvious question. Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, in John 8, that's the climactic question for the Jews that he's been in conversation with. Who do you think you are? 
But Jesus has been speaking of himself and who he is throughout the chapter. He's spoken freely of his relationship with his father, God, the father they do not know. He says, verse 16, it's not I alone who judge, but I and the father who sent me. He's sent by the father and he is one with the father in judgment. Verse 18, he is one with the Father in witness. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness. And yes, verse 19, he truly reveals the Father. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He truly reveals the Father such that to know Jesus is to know the Father, the eternal God. Again, verse 26, he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And then he goes on and says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. He says he's taught by the Father, hearing from the Father what he should speak, and he is always with the Father. And he always does the Father's will, verse 29. So while distinct from the Father, Jesus says his words, judgments and actions are inseparable from the Father. And he says, verse 42, that he cannot be separated from the Father in our relationship to God. If God were your Father, you would love me. He says you cannot claim a relationship with God without loving God him. More, Jesus is confident that he can leave his glory, his fame and reputation, the revelation of his true being in the Father's hands. Verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me. This relationship, he then says, is with the Father is not something he can deny for the sake of pleasing his critics, even if it costs him his life. Jesus claims to be distinct from the Father but inseparable from him, coming from him and returning to him, truly revealing him, speaking his word, doing his deeds in the earth such that to see him is to see the Father, to know him is to know the Father, to love him is to love the Father. And this is so because his being is the being of God. In response to the Jews' question about who he is, Jesus spoke of Abraham rejoicing in seeing his day. The Jews pick up on this in verse 57. You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. <coughs> I am. This is the third time Jesus uses that phrase in in uh, John 8. Now the Jehovah's Witness, New World Translation, if you've ever seen it, reads here, I have been, not I am, but I have been. You see, they want to teach that Jesus is a pre-existent, exalted creature and they want to avoid any suggestion that Jesus is not just pre-existent, exists before Abraham, but eternally existent. But Jesus says, I am. He always is. He always exists. There never was a time when he did not exist. I am used absolutely. He's saying there is no limits on his 
life. It is infinite. And he knows Abraham. He can be sure that Abraham rejoices in his day, the day of resurrection, because he always is distinguished from the Father. Like the Father, he has life in himself. And like the Father, he knows his people for all time. I am is a phrase that self-consciously says he has the being of God. For it's a phrase that God uses of himself, especially in Isaiah 40 to 55, as you can see from the references in the handout, which where it's often in Isaiah it's translated, I am he, but it's the same phrase, ego amy. And in Isaiah, that phrase is a phrase that, while not quoting, actually recalls the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14, where God gives his name, I am who I am, God's revelation of his name in his almighty freedom. Jesus uses this term deliberately. And the Jews had no doubt about what Jesus was claiming. They see it as blasphemy and they seek to stone him. And you and I should have no doubt about that, about that Jesus claims that while he's distinct from the Father and does the Father's will, he shares the life of God. He is God, as we learned in John 1, the eternal word become flesh. And seeing that Jesus uses the phrase absolutely here in verse 58 actually helps us understand and feel the weight of Jesus' earlier uses in verses 24 and 28. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, that he is God. Come amongst us is something, says Jesus, that we must believe to be saved and a claim that amazingly will be demonstrated by death, the death of one who is I am, death on the cross. Now think of it. Here is a man standing, talking to other people, and he says, I am. It's extraordinary, isn't it? If what Jesus says of himself is true, we are right to have confidence in his word, to have our understanding of God shaped by Jesus, to be lost in wonder at the cross. But whether you think Jesus is telling the truth about himself or not, you must recognise that you cannot disagree with what Jesus says about himself and still think he is a good man. As C.S. Lewis observed, if this is not true, he's either the most brazen liar or he is completely deluded. But Jesus doesn't just talk about himself in John 8. He also speaks about his questioners and why we have trouble believing him. In fact, one of the striking features of this passage, and you may have uh, noticed in verse 31 following, is how hard Jesus seems to be on those who have believed in him, to the Jews who had believed in him, he says. You're thinking... Come on, Jesus, they're on your side. They're believing. Give them a break. Encourage, nurture, don't alienate and infuriate. But as we'll see, Jesus just seems intent on turning them against him. That should make you think, why, shouldn't it? Now, Jesus has already said quite a lot about his hearers before he gets to verse 31. Verse 14 following, he says, they are ignorant. You do not know, you judge according to the flesh. It is an intrinsic 
ignorance. It's something that belongs to their being. Being creatures, there are some things they just can't know. And that means that their judgments are marked by the weakness, the frailties and limits of the flesh, the life of this age. Jesus is saying they cannot judge God. Not even God come amongst them. More, says Jesus, verse 21, they will die in their sins. He says it here three times, doesn't he? Religious people, zealous to observe the outward commands of the law. Jesus says they're actually rebels against God and because of that they will die estranged from the life of God, die forever. They can't give themselves life by what they do. And it means that their judgments are not just marked by frailty and finitude. No, he says, you're from below. You're of this world. Their judgments are marked by their commitment to the world, to rebellion against God. And so they will never find the truth by themselves because that rebellion warps all their thinking about God and they won't be able to get themselves out of dying in their sin by their knowledge. But Jesus does seem to reserve his hardest remarks for those who had believed in him. To the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now perhaps they've been impressed by Jesus and what he said. Perhaps they think he should be grateful for their interest, for their aligning themselves with his teaching. But like those we've met in John 2 and John 6, Jesus says they are not disciples. They're still dealing with Jesus on the basis of their understanding of him, not his. Liking this or that that Jesus may say or do, but not receiving him on his own terms. And Jesus says that to be disciples they must continue in his word and then they'll know the truth and that truth will set them free. Free from what, they ask, because they've never been anybody's slaves. Well, Jesus gives them an answer that they don't like. It's a solemn answer. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, everyone who practices, who does sin, is a slave to sin. Slave. They understood slavery. That's a person who's the possession of someone else, in possession of their master, someone who has no right, someone who cannot do other than his or her master's bidding and cannot free themselves. In particular, Jesus highlights here, a slave is someone who has no permanent place in the household, no permanent belonging. Despite their possession of revelation, their believing heritage, Abraham as their forefather, their external ritual conformity, Jesus says they are still slaves to sin and reaping its wages, dying in their sin. Now sometimes what Jesus says, the truth will set you free, is used absolutely. Any truth, even being true to yourself, we're told, will set you free. But actually that is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. It's the truth about him, who he is and what he does that the disciple learns as he continues in Jesus' words. Oh yes, and the truth about how you live as his followers. That truth will set you free. It is Jesus who sets you free. And the freedom's not political freedom or the freedom of being self-directed in your life. It's the most precious freedom of all, freedom from sin and death. And as we'll see from the lies that maintain sin's hold over us. His believing here is had by abiding 
in Jesus' word, to follow Jesus to the necessity of the cross. But they cannot even accept what he teaches them about themselves and their need. So Jesus continues to tell them the truth about their situation, about why they cannot receive his word. Theirs is a willing slavery to sin. And to help them see that, Jesus shifts to talk of fatherhood, addressing their claim to privilege because they say, Abraham is their father. In response, you know, they want to say that their spiritual privilege also extends to being included in Israel, of whom God has said in Exodus 4, Israel is my firstborn son. So they don't want to just say, Abraham's my father. They say, oh, we have God as our father. But Jesus is not using the language of fatherhood to speak of physical descent. He knows that the Jews are seed of Abraham, physically descended from Abraham. He's actually using the language of fatherhood to speak of character in the sense of our saying, like father, like son, whose family you belong to, you know, whose the likeness you bear shows in the values you embrace, the desires you pursue, the actions you perform. By this standard, their claim to have Abraham as their father is shown to be empty. Verse 40, Abraham believed the word of God, but they rejected. By this standard, their claim to have God as their father is also shown to be empty. Verse 42, for they don't love the one the father has sent. So whose children do their actions and desires show them to be? Especially, whom are they shown to be by their inability to receive, verse 43, the true word of God. Well, Jesus says, verse 44, that what characterises the devil characterises them and what he wants is what they desire. Theirs is a willing slavery to sin. So what characterises the devil? You, says Jesus, are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil's characterised as a murderer, someone who hates and wants to take the lives of others, in fact, to plunge our whole race into death. Just as Jesus' hearers want to take Jesus' life. And in so doing, attack all life, life itself, the life that is the light of humanity. And in Genesis, we see that the devil murders through lies. Remember the two big ones? You will not die. God won't keep his word. Oh, yes, and the creature's word can rival God's word in establishing reality. That's the first big lie. And then there's the seductive half-truth. That is the biggest lie that's, in a sense, entranced the hearts of our race. You will be like God. You can determine for yourself right and wrong. You can be accountable only to yourself and hold all else accountable to you. And you only need to look to yourself. They have so embraced lies, Jesus says of his hearers, that they cannot now recognise and receive the truth spoken by the one who speaks the truth of God. They hate the truth. For if you live with those lies long enough, you'll immediately reject the one who tells the truth 
because he tells the truth, the truth that threatens the whole foundation of your life built on those lies and with it your confidence in your own goodness that you have pronounced for yourself. Jesus here is ensnared in lies and death, blind to the truth, unable to discern it. Jesus, you see, is being hard on them to help them see their plight, their helplessness and need. But of course the Jews are not unique. Their problem is our problem. Anyone who commits sin, not just Jews, says Jesus, is a slave to sin. We are all of the flesh, the life of this age, not just the Jews. We are all from below of this world, our judgments flawed and finite, in no place to judge God and reject his word. We all die in sin. And believing those lies, the lies upon which our world is founded, we are all children of the devil. Jesus says that anyone without him is enslaved. Anyone who rejects him shows they don't know God. And we cannot solve our own problem, cannot free ourselves, cannot establish truth independent of him. Well, I don't know how you feel hearing that, but those claims infuriated his first audience. And they seem so extravagant, don't they? What proof could be equal to those claims? Well, Jesus tells us. It must be a God-only proof, something only the living God can do. Jesus knew that. He entrusted, verse 50, his glory, his reputation to the Father, the true judge. Verse 54, it's my Father who glorifies me. And that God-only proof, says Jesus, will be seen in God reversing the judgment of the world, of the Jews on Jesus. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. You see, the Jews did eventually succeed in killing Jesus. They got their will. They lifted him up on the cross to show that he was a liar, that his life had limits, that death could take him a mere man. But the Father did what only God can do. He raised him from the dead in the body in which he died. Now we speak of resurrection often here, but that shouldn't make us forget how wonderful and unique it is. I mean, which other great religious teacher has had the audacity to say, kill me and in three days I will rise? Who else of all the billions of people who have ever lived has done it? It is uniquely claimed, consistently maintained, Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus spoke of that lifting up, revealing his true nature. Then you will know that I am. In being lifted up on the cross to be the saviour of the world and in being lifted up through the cross to the Father's right hand, to the glory which he had with the Father before the world began, all will know that Jesus is I am. Has like the Father life in himself, life he can give to all who come to him and they will know that his word is the word of the living God, the true word, that the things that he has said about us and our plight are true, the things he said about himself are true. Oh, yes, and the promises he has made are true, that he brings, that he is the provision we need for life. That's right, light in our darkness, 
freedom, the freedom of sons in the place of our slavery, truth in a world of lies, lies that are deep in our heart, lies that have spread throughout the world, life in a world of death that has embraced the destruction of life, love where our lives have become ensnared in murderous hatred of God. And this is the provision for all, says Jesus, who will abide in his word, who follow him by keeping on with believing, a believing that does his will. What will you do with the Jesus who confronts us with his greatness and who speaks serious words about our need? Many of his first hearers rejected him. <laughs> they couldn't believe that they were that bad, given to lies and death, and not privileged people, good people, are people able to judge God. Oh, and they couldn't believe that they were enslaved, not freely choosing what they wanted, but given to their master's murderous will. And they couldn't believe that Jesus was that good and that great. God come amongst them speaking the truth to bring freedom and life. But we live on the other side of Jesus being lifted up. We have his teaching. And after 2,000 years, we have seen its impact throughout the world. And it's not that of a mad or bad man. It transforms lives and societies. More, we have the witness of God to Jesus' truthfulness, God glorifying his son on the cross in the resurrection in exalting him to be the giver of the spirit of God. Now, listening to Jesus in John 8, you may have recognised for the first time that the claims of Jesus are claims that no good man could make for himself if he is just a man. Claims only one who is God and man can and should make. You may have recognised that for yourself. And you're confused. You're wondering what you should do. Well, you ought to find out. We'd be keen to read a gospel with you. That's right, come and ask. But if you're a believer, hearing this word again, don't let Jesus be anything less than great in your life. Don't shrink him to the domestic horizons of your life to shape him to be just the one who meets your need. Know him as he is, the great I am who speaks the truth the truth that can be absolutely relied on in life and death and know the significance of your faith in him in your ordinary lives. It's actually a protest against death and untruth. It's the embracing of life and love. It matters. It testifies to the world of the truth of the one who speaks the truth. And be bold in sharing his greatness. He says, he who believes his word, anyone who keeps his word, will never see death. Not maybe, not possibly, but never. And because he is, I am, this is a true word, not just for you, but for all. Grapple with Jesus' greatness every day to the encouragement of your faith 
to the strengthening of your hope and to be nurtured in love. Love of the one who left heaven to be lifted up to give you life. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus says here a lot about himself and about us, probably too much to take in now. But make us determined to know him. Help us to have confidence in him and to trust him as he declares himself to be, the one who speaks the words of God, the one who does the work of God to give life, the one who is our light, the one who can make us free and the one who will give us life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.